So far this season on countless journeys, you've heard stories about Canadians who have built businesses and buildings and even championship winning sports teams. Today, you'll hear from two women who have devoted their lives to building something that's just as vital and perhaps even more important, vibrant communities. In Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, Dr. Lalita Malhotra has delivered more than 10,000 babies, an astonishing number. For some families, Dr. Malhotra has welcomed three generations into the world. They call her the Angel of the North. You know, the chief gave me this title. He said, Doctor, nobody's connected to our people ever. That's why he called me the Angel of the North. He said, mm-hmm. because you have only one we have seen who connects people to people, not as a patient itself. And Marcy Ponte was born in Portugal. She found her calling as a young woman in the Kensington Market neighborhood of Toronto. She has spent decades helping immigrant women and their families adjust to life in Canada's biggest city. But at that time, it was Portuguese women coming to Canada, like my mother, to join their husbands. Uh, We were coming here to build a better life, but also to help build Canada. Their stories are up next. journeys. I was fresh, you know, and I was given the opportunity to, to do and learn whatever I wanted. My grandmother and my family were part of that working class population that people refer to as blue collar workers. I arrived here in December 46 and I will never ever regret it. <laughs> never. Whenever I think of blue collar worker, I think of my grandmother ironing her blue shirt to go to work. Nous sommes venus ici, le Canada nous a donné le meilleur. Alors, donnons au Canada le meilleur. Everywhere I travel now, there's no place like coming home to Canada. J'ai vraiment réalisé la force de ce pays. We live in a country where your beginning has really not much to do with your end. What you do in between is up to you. Welcome to Countless Journeys from the Canadian Museum of Immigration at Pier 21. My name is Paolo Pietro Paolo. It's great to have you with me. The two women you'll hear about today are the kinds of remarkable, selfless women who quietly change the world. I find their stories incredibly moving, and I can't wait for you to meet them. Later, you'll hear about the reality of immigration in a big city like Toronto, but first, a story from Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, population 36,000. Prince Albert is home to the Angel of the North. That's what they call Dr. Lalita Malhotra. It's an honorary name that speaks to the deep ties that she's built with First Nations in northern Saskatchewan. Dr. Malhotra was the first immigrant woman of color to set up her own medical practice in Prince Albert. That was a path that she realized she would have to take after she was repeatedly passed over for work in established practices. It was the beginning of a remarkable career, a career devoted to caring for and often mentoring Indigenous youth, many of whom are among the 10,000-plus babies that Dr. Malhotra has delivered over the years. Dr. Malhotra is one of those people whose energy you just marvel at. 
How does she do it all? She seems to have so much to give. An incredibly generous and caring spirit. One of the most inspiring people I've ever encountered. I reached Dr. Mahocha recently at her office in Prince Albert for a chat. I began our conversation by asking her what it was like arriving in Prince Albert for the first time. Well, uh, we arrived in uh, summer, actually, and at that time you could never imagine how cold it can be because the summers were beautiful at that time, 30 above at the time, and when we arrived, but when winter came, and you can never imagine it's 40 below outside, you know. And uh, I was pregnant at the time, became, and I was wearing a sari, and a friend, uh, another doctor's wife, and she said, okay, I'll come and pick you up for coffee, and I have a sari out, and she stands there, she said, do you know how cold it is? I said, it's beautiful outside. <laughs> said, Go and get changed, put some pants on, I'm not taking you with a sari. <laughs> but you could never imagine from 30 above to 40 below, you know, it was just uh, uh, unpredictable, totally, uh, you know, it ha- it took a bit of absorption time, yeah. Mm-hmm. What, what led you to, and your husband to, to choose to settle in Canada? Another we chose because I had a sister. She was a professor at Queen University. And, uh, and so she said, uh, if you're going to move from UK, because all our uh, education was in UK, and at that particular time, it was very difficult to get any consulting jobs there in Ireland or UK. So um, we applied to Canada, and uh, because with my sister being here, so when my husband applied, he got a job in Calgary as a chief resident. And then pediatrician from here was leaving and they saw his application in Saskatoon. So they they were all Britishers here at that particular time. And they just kept phoning and phoning. They said, you really enjoy it. We all have British background and everything. So that brought us to Canada. <laughs> Apart from apart from the weather, what 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 were your impressions of Prince Albert? Your first impressions? My first impression was that I cried. I can tell you, because when we came from the airport to Prince Albert, they were all, you know how uh, England is. You know you can never tell from one county to another, uh-huh. and uh, and here you know we had traveled so much and we only met about five cars on the way and you could see nothing. You know it's all fields and open field and a lot of land which you had never seen before, neither in India nor in England. Uh, it was a totally different experience, yes. I want to ask you about your, your work in women's health, but first let's go back to, 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 to the 70s and the 80s. Medicine was, was very male-centric in those days. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I found it so hard to find a job because my husband was working in a clinic at that time, it was just clinic-orientated, and I was the first female brown doctor, you know, and there was a resistance about as a female doctor than an immigrant, you know, who was going to give me a job, and any of the clinic people never talked to each other. They were just angry with each other, and uh, I got a locum job, you know, nothing. Nobody would give me a offer a job. So I talked to my dad and my dad said, you know, you always done things on your own. So why don't you open your own practice? You know, Hmm. I said, okay, we will do that. So I rented a place up, established it, advertised it. 
And then my husband had to go through hell, you know, because all the doctors would tell him, your wife is crazy, you know, this town only, people only go to a clinic, they don't go to a doctor. So he said, you know, the thing is that she has to work, that's in her, you know, body that she has to work. I started my practice on the very first day I saw about 12 patients and uh, I had no problem getting established, but it was with, with younger kids. We were lucky to be able to get a, a living babysitter at that time. But I, there were two hospitals here. You ran from one to the other. And, I mean, I had a full-blown practice by two years were over. And after that, everybody wanted me. Do you want to come and join us every clinic? Huh. How did that feel? I said I wasn't good enough for you two years ago. Mm-hmm. Now I'm good because I've got established practice. My obstetrics were high up. And um, I was delivering about 180 deliveries in a year at that time. And then it went up to three, over 300 deliveries a year. And uh, I said, no. I said, when I needed you, you weren't there for me. Hmm. Now I'm able to manage it. That's a, that's amazing. My husband was very supportive of my work always. You know, so that was uh, the good part. And I was quite happy then. I was happy and Raising the children, I would get up at 5.30, take the older daughter for swimming and take the younger ones for piano lesson. They would put them on practice, go and pick the other one, put the third one on the piano. It was a roller coaster, but it paid off in the end. The the children achieved what, what they were supposed to achieve, you know. Was it unusual to focus on, on women's health particularly? Yes, because, uh, you know, I have my fellowship from uh, Royal College of Obstetrician Gynecologists from England. Mm -hmm. So women's health has been always, and in my case here, after I came, um, you know, uh, I connected so well with the Aboriginal women here, and there were so many diseases, so many things which are very common between India and here, even now. I, I can always see the connection, the hypertension, the thyroid, the uh, pregnancy, gestational diabetes. All these are so common factors between India and here. What about the connection, non-medically speaking? Uh, non-medical is uh, my connection with the uh, up north and uh, this has been amazing, though. That's why, you know, the chief gave me this title. He said, Doctor, nobody's connected to our people ever. That's why he called me the Angel of the North. He mm-hmm. said, because uh, uh, you have only one we have seen who connects people to people, not as a patient itself. So I'm delivering the third generation now, you know. When you look back at the first generation, which is this amazing, the, the third generation, when you look back at the first generation that you delivered, what were those experiences first when you first encountered the North and First Nations? What were those experiences like for you? You know, it, it's, a, it's a word of mouth. And they came and they connected and you started knowing the aunts and uncles. And, uh, you know, so you it just went on and on. The connection started getting uh, more and more and more. So that's why it went from one generation to the second to the third now. You must know families. Yeah, absolutely. I delivered a girl a few months ago, and she's 37 herself. I delivered her, her husband, her five kids, you know. 
Wow. So we had a very big emotional moment there, you know, the two grandparents and the five kids and the mom. So it was a quite an emotional uh, moment for us, yeah. What did you see, in, you know, when you when you decided to focus on women's health? Um, how did the community receive you? What did you think you could bring to, to Prince Albert specifically and the, and the North when you first started? Well, I thought, you know, the women here were very suppressed couldn't express themselves, you know, you could see it in their eyes. And in my case, I feel the women sometimes don't tell you what they're there for. And if you look into their eyes, you can read a lot more. It's just having, making it sure that you have an eye-to-eye contact with the person. And if you have an eye-to-eye contact, you can read a lot more on her face than you can read what she tells you. Mm. But you have to look at their face all the time. You know, if you don't look at their face, you miss out. Tell me a bit more about about what it was like for you to to receive that that name, the Angel of the North, to receive the Star Blanket. What what did that mean to you? Oh, I think it's, it means a lot to me. More, you know, uh, the more you think of it, the importance and the emotion in it. You know, the emotion involved, giving it to me, is very very important. Like the other day, I had a patient come in. She brought a box. It had an eagle feather on it, okay? It's an eagle feather in it with the beads on it. And the lining of the box has eagle feather on it. I mean, how emotional that part for me, you know? She wow. said, thank you for all the service you've given us for the years, you know? It's not the box. It's the emotion behind it. That's incredible. That is very touching, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've spoken to me a bit about how your work rewards you as a doctor, as a person. I wonder if you can remember other specific patients. That, I mean, you must have seen thousands of people over the years. But when you look back, do, do any patients, any experiences um, come to your memory? There, there are so many I had a girl who used to only child of the family used to come every day. Every every week she would come sit down, say nothing. I said, "What's the matter? Nothing. I'll come. I'll come back." And she would pick up her bag and go, and then come back next week again. And third time when she came, I said, "Hell, you know, I'm going to close this door, and you're going to tell me why you are here." I said, "You keep coming. This is this is not. There's no good at all." Then she said, "You know my parents, so I can't talk about it." I said, "You have to talk about it." She said, oh, they, they come home, they're both teachers, they come home and drink, and then you, you will tell them what I said. I said, no, I won't tell them. And uh, I said, what is your ambition in life? She was in gate 10. And I said, what is your ambition in life? I want to be a lawyer. I said, okay, you want to be a lawyer? So then what you have to do, you have to become, you have two choices. One, you join your parents to drink. Other choices, you follow your ambition. I said, all you are doing is you're the only child, and I know very well they'll pay for your education. And I said, all what you do is you come home, have supper, go sit and put your bottom on the chair, study, study, study. And eventually, that's what she did. She became a lawyer. I went to her wedding in Alberta, and that's it. And I have another girl who wanted to be a doctor, would come and touch my white coat. I, I love to wear this. I said, why won't you want to wear it? And eventually he went into teaching. I said, what happened to your ambition becoming a doctor? Well, I don't think. 
I can do it. So we had to push her and push her, and now she's graduated. She's doing her residency. So, you know, there are so many, so many, many, and I have so many lawyers who have become, so many nursing uh, who are, you know, Aboriginal girls. These are all Aboriginal girls who have been stimulated. But my focus has always been education. I was reading how your family recently gifted $800,000 to the neonatal intensive care unit at the Victoria Hospital. The current unit is, seems quite small. I was reading about 375 square feet and, and, and that you're going to double the size of the unit, which is amazing. Why was it important to you and to your family to support the hospital in that way? Well, uh, the reason was with uh, my husband being a pediatrician, and uh, he was a really good neonatologist himself. And I remember on one of our anniversary, the nurses were going on strike and there were no uh, beds here. And he flew down and took every baby down to Alberta uh, three times in that night, you know? Wow. So he always thought, you know, I wish we had a nice neonatal unit here. Uh, where we could deal with the babies ourselves and didn't have to transfer them anywhere. So it was always in the back of my mind, and it is in his memory, actually, you know, that uh, we wanted the neonatal unit. You were, you're a member of the Order of Canada. You were invested in February of 2007. When you look back on the fact that you arrived, you know, in Prince Albert in the 70s as an immigrant, um, and then to be awarded that Order of Canada... What did that mean to you? I am very privileged that people appreciate and have given me this honor. But the biggest privilege, I thought, was being appointed to the Advisory Council of the Order of Canada. I was the first immigrant who ever been appointed on there. Mm. And I learned a lot from each each member who was there, you know. Now, I, I, you're a busy doctor. You've raised a family. You continue to be busy working long, long hours. Uh, at, at the same time, you also make time for volunteer work in your community. Tell me a bit about the volunteer work that you do. Well, you can't live in a community and not do the work for the community. It's just not done, you know. Whatever anybody asks me to do, uh, I will do it. I will never say no helping the patients to get their resumes ready. I let them help with that because a lot of them, their parents are not educated enough and that they want to apply for any university credits or anything like that. All those things are a part of the community helping. And um, uh, anything which is done with the art center, with the city, anything which needs to be done. If they ask me to do, I will never say no. That's incredible. How do you, how do you find the energy to do all of that? I don't know. I know a lot of people have asked me about the energy, you know. Uh, I, I eat very, very healthy, you know, very healthy, and I exercise. See? And secondly, you know, when people need you, you get the energy automatically. Hmm. It comes by itself, yeah. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for taking the time today. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. You as well. Take care. The amazing Dr. Lalita Malhotra, 
one of the loveliest, most generous, most caring people I've ever encountered. Now I'm joined by Countless Journeys producer, Tina Pitoy. Hey, Tina. Hi, fellow. Tina, I have to tell you, a couple of months after Dr. Malhotra and I spoke on the phone for this podcast, she called me back just to check in <laughs> and see how I was doing and how my kids were doing. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me because she emailed me <laughs> like weeks after I had set up your your conversation with her to s- check in on how I was doing. That's That doesn't surprise <laughs> me at all. <laughs> She's really, really one of the most inspiring, giving people you could ever hope to meet. Absolutely. And, uh, I think a, a true force for community in Canada. Yeah, I'm one of those people that you really don't necessarily hear about if you don't live in her community. So I'm I'm just thrilled that we we could bring her story to to a wide audience. Same, same. It's so true, you know. And I'm really grateful to Pier 21 for making it possible for us to share these stories far and wide. Stories like Dr. Malhotra's and stories like the one you're about to share about another community builder, a woman who moved here from Portugal with her family when she was a young girl. That's right. And just as Dr. Malhotra's work has had such an impact on her community in Prince Albert, the story I have today features a woman whose lifelong work has been devoted to improving the lives of women and families in Toronto. My full name is Marcelina Torres da Ponte, but it was uh, quickly changed and shortened when I started school in Kingston, Ontario in grade one. The teachers said it was too long, so they cut it down to Marcy Pont. Oh, man. I mean, changing people's names uh, seems to have been a pretty routine practice, eh? It certainly seems to be. And I, I hope the practice is less common these days, but it, it sure was something that was done pretty routinely. And I'm sure lots of families have similar stories. Now, Tina, this, this conversation we're hearing today is from the museum's oral history collection. That's right. It was recorded in 2018 with Emily Burton, who is an oral historian here with the museum. In the past little while, Tina, you've been telling me about Marcy's work supporting immigrant women in Toronto, which is my hometown. Uh, so I'm really keen to, to, to learn more about, about her work. Well, she's the executive director of an organization called the Working Women Community Centre. And it's their fundamental belief that immigrant women are at the core of successful families and thriving communities. I 100% fully agree with that sentiment. Having experienced it firsthand growing up as the child of Italian immigrants in Toronto. And uh, and so her center is called the Working Women Community Center. Um, they offer programming to support immigrant women, I suppose. They do. Uh, they started out back in the 1970s, actually, with one facility in Parkdale. Uh, they've expanded to a total of four locations across Toronto. Uh, And their programs cover everything. For example, they help newcomers overcome some of the barriers that often stand in the way of accessing services or getting a toehold in the job market. And in terms of their impact, uh, their programs reached more than 9,000 newcomers and their families last year. Wow, that is not a small number. And that's uh, that's, that's some important work. It's really vital grassroots work. And and it was really interesting to hear Marcy talk about uh, how she got her start in it. And that's really what I want to focus on for this segment, uh, the influences in her life that led her to this kind of work. Uh, You'll hear all about that in a minute or two, but first you'll hear from Toronto City Councillor Anna Bailao. She represents Ward 9 Davenport, where Marcy's lived and worked for many years. I know Davenport well. Um, That's the ward I grew up in. A lot of immigrants and their children uh, in, in that area, and we came from so many different countries growing up. Well, Ms. Bailao 
also came from, to Canada from Portugal uh, when she was 15 and has known Marcy for many years. And I spoke with her a few weeks back and she described the impact of the Working Women Community Centre on the lives of people in her community. Especially in uh, the settlement and support of uh, immigrant women and their families um, with programs such as uh, settlement programs, so all kinds of um, support, information, integration programs, including language programs to uh, immigrant women, uh, then to their families as well. So uh, we have a community with a very high dropout rate in Portuguese, Spanish-speaking communities. So this, Marcy started a program called On Your Mark that over the years has helped hundreds and hundreds uh, of students uh, throughout their school years. There's programs that they have around food security as well, uh, that they uh, assist newcomers and from community gardens, so food preparations, you name it. Uh, there's a number of those involved as well. That's Toronto City Councillor Anna Bailao uh, describing some of the invaluable ways that an organization like Marcy's can help out. Um, I remember hearing about organizations like these growing up in Toronto and, and how crucial they were at helping people find their feet while experiencing the, the bewildering, overwhelming reality of arriving in a new country. Uh, speaking of which, what was it like for Marcy herself when she came to Canada? Well, she arrived in Canada in 1963 uh, from Portugal's Santa Maria Island, which is part of the Azores. Uh, she was seven years old and she arrived in Vancouver along with her mother and three siblings at that time. Uh, her father actually had left Portugal a few years earlier. He was here for four, five or six years before we joined. Canada was busy building itself at that time, and he was uh, intrigued to come and help build the railways in Western Canada. So my father, the purpose for coming here was to uh, seek a better life and send money back. Hmm, that is such a common story. Uh, a father or a mother coming on their own to Canada to work and to, to gain a foothold for a few years before sending for their family to come join them. A very, very common immigrant experience for new Canadians. It sure is, Paolo. And, and her family's story takes actually a very sad turn uh, just a few years after they moved here. So we then moved to Kingston, Ontario, uh, because my mother's family all lived in Kingston and still do. And so she wanted the support of family. And so we took uh, via train across the country. And uh, it was easier there because we had lots of cousins lots of aunts, um, and there was a bit of a Portuguese community there that we were able to, to relate to and connect with. And it was in Kingston, when Marcy was 14, that her father died suddenly at the age of 45. Oh my goodness, uh, that's a, a terrible loss. It absolutely was, and, and in those years, uh, between living in Vancouver and moving to Kingston, her parents had actually had three more children, so her mother was now a single mother of seven children. Oh my gosh, wow. Yeah, so so they stayed in Kingston for a while, uh, and when Marcy was 15, uh, her eldest brother married and he moved to Toronto, and he and his wife, uh, they bought a big house in the Leaside neighborhood, actually. It's a very middle class, very white neighborhood, at least it was at that time. And her brother invited his mom and his siblings to move in. And it was, the, it was a challenge because we went from living in a small island in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, we were poor, we didn't, to living in a very middle-class white neighborhood. Um, it was just, it was very different. 
You know, it's interesting to hear Marcy refer to the neighborhood as being white. You can hear she means different from herself. And beyond the neighborhood, just with all the moves alone, that is a lot of change for such young kids to deal with. No wonder it was overwhelming. It really was. And and Marcy found the high school experience actually really stressful, where she was just uh, one of two kids of Portuguese descent. Uh, so she spent a year there, but decided that she was going to finish high school through evening courses so she could actually work during the day to help support her family. Uh, and when she was 17, she enrolled at Centennial College uh, to study community development. And that's where the seeds of her life's work were really planted. One of my uh, instructors was a woman called Miss Secord, who I would have a lot of debates with her in class. And she at one point said to me, you know, you should think about uh, working in your own community. And I looked at her and said, what do you mean? And she said, That's what's, this is how I discovered Kensington Market. And she said, you need to go work in Kensington Market. You need to go and be amongst people that you have something in common with um, because you know, you might have a lot to offer. And so I did. Uh, And I was 17 years old when I went to St. Stephen's. Hmm. St. Stephen's is is really a, a vital part of Kensington Market, isn't it? It is, and and it served as a community and social justice center uh, since the early 1960s. And what a wonderful community to discover, too, for Marcy, particularly, you know, if you're from Portugal, because there are a lot of Portuguese who live and work in that neighborhood. I grew up not far from there in Little Italy, and my first playmate was my next-door neighbor, a Portuguese boy my age, and I can still remember the scent of charcoal and sardines from their weekend barbecues. Portuguese are master grillers. Um, And speaking of Kensington Market, I mean, talk about a richness of fragrances from around the world. Oh, absolutely. Um, I have a a connection to it. I lived there when I was in my early 20s, actually, going to Ryerson. Now, this would have been uh, the mid-80s. And what a neighborhood to discover if you're an out-of-towner, and and even more so if you're Portuguese. What were Marcy's first impressions of the neighborhood? She was completely taken with it. All of those uh, familiar sights uh, and sounds and smells of home that you spoke of uh, in terms of what your neighbors were cooking. Well, at at that time, they were still selling live chickens. Um, It was a very vibrant market. Uh, Lots of uh, Portuguese stores, um, still some Jewish-run stores. Uh, There were probably a couple of Italian stores that were there. Um, but it was it was just so vibrant. It was you, you really felt like you could smell food from everywhere, and it was just it was just a beautiful place to be. You know, that was alive. It just felt alive. And I decided at that point I was going to leave home, um, and uh, and it was it was hard because at, at those days, nineteen year old Portuguese girls don't leave home uh, to live by themselves or with their boyfriends. Um, and I had been working. My mother had a really hard time. Uh, she was she didn't understand this concept, and you know she was a very religious woman and would pray that I would change my mind. Yeah, that must have taken a lot of courage for Marcy. I have aunts and cousins who struggled with this in our Italian immigrant family. Moving out was something you just didn't do in those cultures, especially at that time. Absolutely. And and I'm sure it's still an issue in many families across all sorts of cultures. Uh, But Marcy was determined. Uh, She called in a few reinforcements to help convince her mother. But I was working with three missionaries who were very active in the community. We were working with a project called Cleaners Action, advocating for immigrant women who were working as cleaners in downtown Toronto, fighting for their rights. Um, And uh, 
I asked them if they would help me through this process of leaving home. The three of them went to, with, to my house and sat down with my mother. They brought a priest, a friend of theirs, um, and uh, sat down and assured her that I would be okay, that they would take care of me, that um, Toronto was a big city, but I would be in good hands. And the priest, you know, said a few prayers with my mother and gave her a little blessing and uh, everything was fine. Uh, the next day I woke up and at the side of the, the floor of the bed was a cast iron pan, a, a wooden spatula and a knife. And that was her way of saying, okay, I get it, you're going, it's, it's okay. <laughs> that's just, to me, that's just like out of a scene, out of a novel, isn't it? It's, it's <laughs> so a, that, that image. Yeah, it's a beautiful image. And, and it just contains so much about family and yeah. love and home. I just, I, I love that it's, image. It's great. But even though Marcy had her mother's support, uh, the times were different. And there was some blowback over her decision to live on her own in Kensington. I actually lost a couple of friends as a result of moving out. Um, a couple of my, actually, my maid of honor. Her, her mother was dead set opposed to my moving out and this was girls didn't do Portuguese girls didn't do this and so I actually lost a couple of friends whose parents forbid them to be with me yeah you know I wasn't ready to go off and just get married and have babies I wanted to live my life I wanted to experience things I wanted to do different kinds of work and uh, within the sector so yeah it was a great experience for me and, and it really shaped who I am today now, one of the first jobs she took uh, was at St. Christopher's House, which is another settlement and community support centre in Parkdale, which is a little bit west of Kensington. Uh, she'd heard about it through the missionaries who spoke with her mother, in fact. Now, St. Christopher's was really active at the time in organising around workers' rights for cleaners, uh, mostly immigrant women at the time, uh, women who worked in hotels and offices. Uh, Marcy's mom, in fact, had worked as a chambermaid in Kingston. So um, they, they established a, a program called Cleaners Action, um, and this was um, a program to advocate for these women's rights in the workplace. So I often got sent, because I was the youngest, got sent into union meetings uh, on, the, on the pretense that I was someone's daughter, just to hear what was going on in the union meeting and to make sure that they were getting correct information and truthful information. So in those days, the employers would uh, give their, the workers an hour off at the end of the day, and the women would agree to stay an extra hour. So for two hours, I would go into workplaces and teach English. Uh, a number of us did that. Um, so really good grassroots work. Gosh, you know, that that's really is frontline work that Marcy was doing, uh, and probably a really rich training ground for what she would be focusing on throughout her career. Yeah, and you know, she got her mom involved as well, which really made Marcy realize uh, the impact that it can have to bring women together to support one another. And at one point, Marcy invited her mom to join in with one of the events that she was organizing for St. Stephen's House. I was doing community outreach and community engagement. And one of the projects that they gave me to do to handle was organizing the first community festival in Kensington Market. And uh, I, my mother at this point was living in an apartment with my other siblings, um, downtown Toronto. And so I invited my mother to come and help me, to come and help cook for the day, uh, some Portuguese food. And uh, she, she came and she was, you know, for the first time, 
I saw my mother happy. And you know, you know, you see the difference when someone's in a place where there's there's a lot of connection. Um, and I saw her smile for the first time in a long time. It was so that that just did it for me. She was amongst other Portuguese women who immigrated to Canada, who had similar experiences, who you know may have lost their husbands, or you know had a lot in common. And so I I saw her happy, and I saw the the power of collective work and bringing people, women together who can have, share a common bond and support each other. And that's when I decided that's it. And this is, so I've been doing this work ever since. No, that's, that's amazing. You know, it's, it, it, it really speaks to what is the definition of community, right? It really does. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And Marcy's career, uh, it's always been rooted in building stronger communities. Uh, she spent several years with the labor movement, uh, but always found her way back to working women's center, actually. And as Anna Bailao explains, her focus on building supportive, inclusive communities is continuing with a major housing development that's underway in Scarborough. One of the things that she's been working lately is in an area of the city that is going through major redevelopment. It's called the Golden Mile. And so she's been working with uh, the local community and then the developers that are going to be developing thousands and thousands of units, a brand new community. And, and she's been at the table leading conversations about how to make sure we build inclusive communities and communities that are uh, welcoming also for uh, the newcomers, the new residents of Toronto. So um, we're very lucky to to be the beneficiaries of, uh, of Marcy's work. Now that's Toronto City Councillor Anna Bailao speaking about Marcy Ponce. It's, uh, it's just so amazing, Tina, to hear about these, these hardworking, selfless women, true heroes who, who might not be household names, but maybe should be, for the incredible positive impact that they've had on life in Canada. Thanks so much for sharing this story, Tina. Thank you, Paolo. My name is Paolo Petropaolo. Thank you to today's guests, and thanks to you for joining me for this episode of Countless Journeys. Countless Journeys is produced by Tina Pitaway, mixed by Natasha Aziz, for the Canadian Museum of Immigration at Pier 21. To learn more about the museum, visit pier21.ca. And if you enjoyed this episode, make sure to like, follow, and share. Bye for now.